0: Okay, I think we're ready to begin. Uh, We're studying Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I'm putting these two chapters sort of together. Uh, The title of this message today is Seal Not the Sayings. Seal Not the Sayings. The reason is because of what it says in chapter 22 and verse 10. Um, And he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. I showed you some days ago uh, how that in the Old Testament, um, a lot of the future was hidden from the world. And there was no understanding of things that we now understand in our generation. In the book of Daniel, God showed him some things concerning the future. But he told him to seal up the book until the time of the end. And how the wicked would do wickedly and the wicked would not understand. But the wise would understand and it's futuristic the way it's worded. And I've tried to impress upon us the fact that God's word is an unfolding revelation. It's an unfolding revelation. The Apostle Paul was um, a very special minister to reveal to us in his 14 books of the 27 in the New Testament things that were hidden in ages past, things that were mysteries. He said, Behold, I show you a mystery. And so now we come to the book of the Revelation, the very final message from heaven And God is showing us something that has never been seen or understood before. And he's telling John um, to not seal this book. Not to seal the sayings that are in this book. For the time is at hand. The time has come for us to know some things we've never known before. I don't understand why the Lord did not show these things in ages past to those that were in that Old Testament period, but he didn't. He had his own reasons for it. There were things that were more important for them to be thinking about at that particular junction in human history we have remarked on the fact that in the 1800s, very little of what is said prophetically in this book could have been understood. We did not foresee this age of technology. But, I mean, from my own experience, folks, being brought up, I'm 78 years old now, 78 years old. I'm telling you that in the last 78 years, this world understands more than has ever been understood in the history of the world concerning this book. I can remember when the only heat available in a home was a wood stove. And I used to go out with my dad In the wintertime is usually when we did it, and we would go out with our saws and we would cut down trees and we would chop wood. And we would chop wood and stack it up so it would dry out so that we could use it in the wood stove. And we had no such thing as running hot water. You had to put a a big tub on the wood stove and heat it up. And you had to get up early. And my dad always did that. He would get up early before anybody else, and he would light the stove and get it going. And it was the only source of heat in the entire house, and it was in one room. We didn't have a wood stove in, that, a stove in every room. <laughs> and sometimes we would sleep under blankets that were so thick, it was so heavy it'd be difficult to even turn over. (laughs) I can remember those days. I can remember when there were no television, no air conditioning, nothing like that. No telephones that you could just call out. There were no satellites, nothing like that when I was a boy. And so we have come to That period of time in human history when the Lord said to Daniel in the 12th chapter that in the last days men would be going to and fro in the earth. He said it in the earth. What was he talking about? He was talking about jet travel. Circling the entire globe in jet planes. God knew that. He prophesied that it would happen. He said that knowledge would increase, and it has. The age of technology uh, really began to blossom in the late 1800s with many, many inventions, many inventions, as men studied in a far more concentrated way the world of existing things than they ever had in the history of the world. It was at that period of time that they discovered the microscope and they looked deeper into the world of existing things uh, and they discovered molecules and then atoms and then they started splitting atoms and finally we had the atomic bomb. And it's just incredible the amount of knowledge that's available to us today. Now, in these lessons, I have said some things that I think have discouraged some people. I've talked to some who have been because of some of the things that have been said in this teaching. And I can tell you now that I regret that. I regret that anybody could have come to a a Bible study and would... Uh, As a result of my failure as a teacher to explain things uh, in a way that it would seem to be more comfortable to your ears, uh, I accept the fault entirely for that. I've had some on the very same teaching to be excited beyond measure, and let me know it. And I've had others that have been very discouraged because it's so different from the way we've ever thought about things before. And so uh, one of the things that has stuck in my mind ever since I've learned it in coming here to this church is the depth of what is meant by the Lord in Isaiah 55 when he said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And you're born into this world knowing nothing. And you are able to do nothing without me. Without me, you can do nothing. We've had years to ponder these thoughts, and I don't think we've begun to scratch the surface of how important those words are. Now, I want to bring something to your attention. In teaching what the world is going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth... We have our own notions of how we think that it should be or how we would like for it to be. We sure do. Because we have learned to think a certain way during this lifetime since we've been born and we've grown up and we've studied the Bible and we may think we understand the Bible. But the Apostle Paul said, No, you don't, not really. Not the way God understands it. Because we see through a glass darkly. But one of these days, we're going to see everything clearly. Absolutely clearly. Now, the thought I'd like to bring to your attention is the fact that, and I mentioned this the other week, when God created the heavens and the earth, as, as we read it in Genesis No one was there. There was no personality anywhere to see it. Some people think angels were there to see it. That's not true. I don't believe it's true. It's not consistent with what the Bible teaches because God said in Exodus chapter 20 that he made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. Everything that's in the heavens, he made it during the six days of creation. My inclination is to believe that he created the angels before he created man, but he created them in that six days of creation. There's not one word in the Bible that you can show anyone to indicate that they were created before creation. There's not one word in the Bible that says anything was created by the creator before the six days of creation. If you can show it to me, I'd like for you to do that. I don't think you can. And so the angels were not there to offer to God some kind of opinion about how uh, he should go about his work. And we certainly were not there. We didn't exist. Adam didn't exist. And God went about creating right by Himself, and it had everything to do with his will. His will. Now, when the fall took place that we read about, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. I think I'm supposed to speak Wednesday night. Does anybody know? I think. I'm not sure. Is that right? It's Jed. Jed's Wednesday night. Well, bless his heart. I'm glad. It'll give me a little bit more time. Okay. Um, Well, anyway, um, I'm planning at some point to talk a little bit about the first sin. Most people, when they think about the first sin, think about Adam and Eve, and they sin. But that's not true. That's not the first sin. The first sin is recorded in Ezekiel uh, twenty-eight, and it was Lucifer. And then, very quickly, after he sinned, uh, he led a third of the angels with him, and that was the first sin. And that's why they, tempt, uh, why Satan tempted Eve, is because he'd already fallen; he was a tempter. And um, so the point that I want to make, though, is that no one was originally in the Garden of Eden uh, to counsel the Lord in terms of his plans for the future. And he created a paradise for Adam and Eve, according to his will. And I told you in my teaching that God never intended death or tears or crying or pain or a curse of any kind as we read about in the Bible beginning in the third chapter of Genesis. He never intended that. That was not his will. And so what happens And this is the reason for the fall. And I I think we're still possessed of the same nature. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 7. The reason for the fall had to do with the free will, it had to do with man trying to improve on the will of God. Now, think about it. Think about what I just said. Sin is man trying to one-up God or improve God in areas where we think that our way would be better. This is developed through the remainder of the Bible, what I just said. And this is our nature. We have our own will. God has his will. And the Bible teaches up one side and down the other, and we're seeing it here as we come to the final chapters of the Bible. We're seeing that the only thing that really matters is the will of God. The same thing that really mattered when he created the first heaven and the first earth. The only difference is we're going to be observers those of us that are saved, that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're going to be observers as he creates the new heaven and the new earth. There were no observers for the first creation of the first heaven and the first earth. But this Bible, just as clearly as I'm standing up here and you can see me, Uh, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and he doesn't need any input from anybody. And we've got our ideas because of this period of time that we have lived on this earth about what would be nice in the new heaven and the new earth in terms of what we will even know. We've got our own ideas about that. And if you're not careful, you'll sit right here in this church as people who have studied this book for years, many of you as long as I have and longer, and you will begin to plug in how you think it's going to be. God tells us how it's going to be. He sure does. He tells us how it's going to be in his own word. I think that I mentioned this to you the other day in one of the classes. uh, Somebody that had been to the Bible Institute was talking about David Cloud's response to uh, somebody that was talking about how the Bible was very difficult for them to understand in terms of the King James And uh, David Clow was pointing out that it was not complicated at all. You just read it for what it says. Don't try to read it for something that it doesn't say. Read it for what it says. God says what he means, and he means what he says. And that's the attitude that we need to come with, and I'll tell you another thing. We have not one thing to offer God in terms of this new heaven and new earth as to how it should be done. And there's not one word anywhere in Scripture where the Lord consulted with his family other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in terms of eternity future. There was no getting the Old Testament saints together or the Bride of Christ talking with them about how it was going to be to see if that met their approval. Not one word. And so the Bible is also very clear in teaching us, especially Paul's writings, In that day when we see Him face to face, we're going to see and experience God in a way that we never have before. We, listen to this, are going to see Him as He is. This has never been done before, not by man seeing him as he is. Not in these natural bodies as we view God. We're looking at him through a glass darkly. We sure are. But the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, when he comes, we're going to be like him. And we're not only going to be like him, we're going to see him as he is. Now, let me tell you what happens when you see him as he is. You do not have to enter into his love. Now, just listen to me carefully and be patient with me. You do not have to see the magnitude of his love by the cross. When you see him as he is, you'll see him the way the angels did. I said this the other day to somebody in conversation. When we see the cherubim with their wings overspread over the ark, and Paul tells us uh, how the angels desire to look into what all that was, because their wings were overspread over the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. And the ark was a type of the coffin. That's what it means. If you look the word up, it means coffin, which speaks of the death of Christ. And most of the time the teaching is that the angels, the archangels are, are looking down at that, Desiring to look into it. Well, there's a difference between seeing him as he is and the angels did. As compared to how we see him, the way the Lord brought us to understand the depths of his love was the cross of Calvary. He died for us on Calvary's cross. We had no conception of Seeing him as he is, the loving God that he is, without this method. And God showed us this through this method of his coming into this world, despised and rejected of men. Being massacred on the cross of Calvary. And for the joy that was set before him, he would endure the cross, despising the shame. And it brought us to Christ. And we can't imagine ever knowing him any other way than that. But I'm telling you, I believe that if you will ponder the scriptures, ponder a little better the angels, you can see a better way of seeing him as he is. And it's one of the reasons we read in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16 that the Lord himself said, you're not going to do this anymore. It's not going to be a part of what eternity is going to be like. It's going to pass away and not be remembered. Why would he say that? I did not say that. God said that. Why did he say that? Let me tell you why. Because there's a better way. There's a better way. And we've never experienced that better way because we've never seen him face to face and we've never seen him as he is. Folks, when we see him as he is, there's nothing that can be added to it. Nothing. He is the lovingness, personality in the universe. There's none to compare to him. That's what glory means. Incomparable. There is no love to compare to the love of Christ. And we're going to see him as he is. And these, these things that God used to bring us to himself to enter into this love are not necessary anymore. I do not understand how we could say that's not true. I, I've tried, I, I've gone back to my studies and I have tried to go back over some things that I admittedly poorly explained. I don't think that I've ever said these words to you before. That I've said this morning. In terms of seeing him as he is. But I'm telling you in the world to come. A lot of things that we experience in this life. It is unthinkable to us that we will not remember these things. But I'm not the one that said we would not remember it. It was God who said it. Now, I've listed several things. There are going to be radical changes. Radical changes. Things that are done away. God says they're done away. He did away with them. <laughs> I didn't say this. God said it in His Word. And the first one, again, is, John, is uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16, which is the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to tell you something there's going to be no Ark. There's going to be no mercy seat. There's going to be no blood. I know this sounds unthinkable to us. And I'm not going to say that this is exactly what the Bible teaches. But a lot of times when I'm thinking about these things, as the Lord seems to be unfolding it to us, I don't see how it could be otherwise. But what it led me to think, and I'll just offer it to you as a thought. I do not know that it's absolutely true. But everything that I see as I I put all this together in terms of what is not going to be remembered anymore, um, I do not understand how the Lord in eternity to come in the new heaven and the new earth is going to have nail-scarred hands. I don't think there's going to be any memory of it. I still don't. The things that brought us to him is unthinkable to us. That somehow or other, that could be absent from our thinking in the world to come. But I'm going to tell you, the thing that you've got to put into balance that's going to overbalance anything that you have ever known about God is seeing him as he is. That's how God originally wanted Adam to see him. As he is. But he had to create Adam with a free will. And he did. He created the angels with a free will. Why? Why? Because God the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost have a free will. If you continue in my word, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the essence of what freedom is, because they're one in truth and what is right. But it's still a free will. And Jesus Christ made it very clear in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Not my will, but thine be done. He had a free will. He could have said, Father, I've thought about it, but it's just too much. It's just too much. Let those like the angels that chose to believe the truth be saved. And those that rebelled as Lucifer did and the demons that are now demons did and cast them into hell. But God so loved the world. Of those born in ignorance, he did what he did on this earth to the end that we might see him as he is. One day see him as he is. But I'm going to tell you something. When we see him as he is, we're not going to need any of that anymore. I don't know that that's... It's not difficult for me to accept that as a Bible teacher. What would cause me to nearly faint in this church would be for anybody to think that I would undermine the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because those were the very things that brought me to him. The hope of resurrection from the dead. But folks, in eternity to come, there's going to be no death. There's going to be no resurrection from the dead because we're all resurrected. Resurrected. Forevermore, we were alive, but we died in trespasses and in sin. But after resurrection, behold, we're alive forevermore. And that's what Jesus Christ said in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. He does not want us, I'm telling you, I do not believe this is incorrect. He does not want us to remember him as dead. This was to the churches that he was writing. In the first four chapters, it is to the churches that God is writing. And when we come to Revelation 20 through 22, he's writing to the churches again, and he says so in chapter 22 and verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. And in the churches, he's telling us how he wants to be remembered. I am he that liveth. Why? Because he was resurrected from the dead. Death was swallowed up in victory in Christ Jesus. He said, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And that's how he wants us to see him. And so the idea of Christ walking around bloodless, with his blood being in a basin on an ark of a covenant, which is the only other place it could be, is unthinkable to me. Absolutely unthinkable. It's totally out of context with the new heaven and the new earth. Totally out of context. There is no death. There's no remembrance of death. There's no scars. I do not believe there are going to be scars. In the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his feet. I believe we're going to see him as he is. The living God. The living God. In all his glory. And it's it's very difficult. And I'm so sympathetic. When it comes to teaching people. These kinds of thoughts. Because. It's not what we're accustomed to. Those of us that are members of this church, we we fell in love with Christ because of the preaching of the cross. We came to him because of the preaching of the cross. We had never seen love like that. But when we see him as he is, we're not going to need proofs. We're not going to need illustrations of his love. We're going to see him as he is. We're going to see his nature, his character, his personality, and the glory of it, which means incomparable. There's no one that has ever existed in the way of personalities that can compare to Jesus Christ as he is. He that cometh to God must believe that he is as he has revealed himself to be. He has always been this way, folks, always. Always. And so a multitude of things are not going to exist in the new heaven and new earth. One is going to be the temple. It tells us in uh, chapter 21, verse 22. I'm going to go over these quickly because our time gets going in a hurry. There's not going to be a temple. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the temple. He's the embodiment of the Godhead. In him dwelleth all the fullness of... Of the Godhead bodily. That's what Paul wrote. Jesus Christ. Is the embodiment. Of the creator God. In a body. It's amazing. How could. How could eternity. A being as. As big. As omnipresent as God. God. Be contained in time and space in a body. How could this little book be the mind of God? It is. It's the mind of God. I believe that this book we could study for all eternity to come. All eternity to come. But it's infinite. It's infinite. But there are certain things that are in here that God wrote, inspired. Why is it in this book at this point? Why is it eternally settled in heaven, his word? Folks, the settled aspect of that statement is the conclusion of the will of God in this book. Eternally settled is the unfolding revelation. Let me tell you what's eternally settled. God himself. The word is not pages on a book. The word is a person. Truth is not an academic. It's a person. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. We've got to learn that distinction. What's eternally settled in heaven is the Son of God that ascended into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God the Father. Eternally settled. At rest. Why? Because... He finished the work. What is the focus of God? Upon what's eternally settled. Upon what is finished. Upon the correcting of everything that was wrong. The new heaven and the new earth is the final place that we're going to rest and we're going to see him as he is for all eternity to come And there's going to be no more sea. Why? Well, as someone has said and picked up on in the teaching, because that's where the Lord said he cast our sin into the depths of the sea. There's not going to be any sea. Our sin is going to be so done away with, there's not even going to be a sea. But let me tell you another reason why there's not going to be a sea. It's because the oceans... Divide. And there's not going to be any more division. The only thing that we're going to have is a river, and we'll read about that in the beginning of chapter 22, when we have time to get into it. Um, There's going to be this river of life, this water of life. that's going to flow out from the throne of God, but there's not going to be any more sea. You see, when... The Tower of Babel incident took place. God divided the nations. And with the flood, you know, and the judgment of the flood, that was when oceans and seas came into existence because God had to create these basins uh, so that the water could recede down into the basins and the mountains rose up and everything excuse me, everything that we live on today is is what uh, emerged out of the water when God created the basins to contain the water. I've often thought about this when I go down to Myrtle Beach when we go to the convention I go out there and I look at the ocean and I see all the naked people laying out there in their bathing suits they have no clue that that is, uh, is really proof of God's wrath on this world. When God destroyed the whole world with a flood, and here they are laying out there naked on the shore of his wrath with no idea what they're even doing. I've thought about that many times. How do those oceans are symbolic of the wrath of God? And it's there for the world to see and has been ever since the flood in the days of Noah. And so after the Tower of Babel, God divided the nations and they split off into these different land masses. Why? to prevent the new world order. That's why it was done. And so the Bible says what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But what God has divided, let no man put back together. And so the new world order is an attempt to reverse what God did in dividing the world. And they're saying we're not going to allow the world to be divided. We're going to have a new world order. We're going to bring it together. That's satanic. It's attached to the core for anybody that understands the Bible. And I believe I do. I believe I understand this. I believe that we can look at what's going on in the world today and understand it through the perspective of this book. This is prophecy. And it's the very last prophecy God would give the world. The emphasis on it being the last one is the warning in chapter 22 not to add to it or to take away from it. That's just another way of saying this is it. If you want to know my mind concerning the future, this is it. The book is closed. There's nothing else that you need to know. Nothing else. So there's going to be no more C, which means no more division. There is going to be a new world order, and it's going to be gods. It's not going to be Lucifer's. It's not going to be the Democrats and the rhino Republicans. I can tell you that. Those people have no clue what this book teaches and how much trouble they're in. They have no clue. We need to be praying for them every day because they're, they're on their way to hell and have no clue the peril that they live in every day. There's going to be no more night. It tells us that in, in, in verse 5 of chapter 22. There's going to be no need for the sun or candles because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And there's going to be no darkness. Now that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a sun, and I, I want to make that clear. I think the sun is going to always exist. I have reason to believe that it's actually the lake of fire. I'm not going to get into that. I, it's just interesting thoughts, I, folks. Everything that I say is not something you need to go home with and say, well. Mr. Creek said it, it must be true. That's not the case at all. I have a curious mind just like you do, and I I've wondered where is the lake of fire. I pick up books and I read where other people have offered their thought on where the lake of fire is. But the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And the wrath they're going to be facing in eternity is the wrath of God. I don't think that it's sinful to ponder that thought. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's an interesting thought. I've had many interesting thoughts out of studying this book. Um, we're going to have a new name. I don't know what your name is now, but it may be done away with forever. Because I'm not the one that said this. God did. He said, I'm going to give you a new name. That's in chapter 2 and verse 17. That's what happens when you get married, you know. The bride takes the name of the groom. Where'd that come from? It came out of the Bible. That's why we practice that in marriage. So why should we think that it would be strange that God would give us a new name? He gave Peter a new name. He called different people different things. He, He named them. Does he have the right to do that? Yes, he does. He's God. He can give you the identity that he wants you to have. And it's the only identity that you'll ever have that means anything. Is the identity that he gives you. There's going to be no curse in chapter 22 and verse 3. In chapter 21, verses 4 through 5, there's no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. Former things are passed away. All things have become new. I didn't say that. He did. Do you think we'll have a broken heart in this new heaven, new earth? I don't. Do you think we'll have fear of any kind of God? I don't. Any more than Jesus Christ fears the Father. The Bible says we'll be like him. Folks, this is not straining logic to make these conclusions. It's absolutely consistent with what God says. Absolutely. Paul said that prophecy would cease. And that's exactly what John says here in chapter 22. Do not add to and do not take away from. That's prophecy ceased. It's done. When you finish reading chapter 22 in Revelation You're done when it comes to what you can know on earth from God. And if anybody else comes along and tries to add to it, don't pay any attention. Just go back and study the Bible. Turn off your TVs and stop watching the news. If you want to watch the news, read this right here, and you'll have it. There's not going to be any marriage in heaven. Now, this is very disturbing to a lot of people because there are people, and there are few, that really love their wife or wives that really truly love their husband. And it's unthinkable to those who really truly love their wife or husband that they're not going to be running around with their wife or husband in heaven. But I didn't say that, God did. He said it in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30. Read it for yourself. I didn't say it. He said there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. We'll be like the angels. The angels don't marry. They don't procreate. They don't have children. I didn't say this. God said it. And so whatever our thoughts are and how we would like for the new heaven to be, is us trying to improve on God's perfection. And so it's unthinkable to us that in eternity to come. Now, the question has been asked, will we know one another? I don't think there's any question about the fact that we'll know one another. I don't know exactly how we're going to know them and remember them in terms of wife or husband or whatever, but I'll tell you this. We will know others even as we are known by God. You go up to people now, and you can't really know them. You can see them, but you don't really know them. But God really knows them. He sees the heart. You're going to be able to see the heart too. You sure are. You're going to know people better than you have ever known them in your life. And I'm telling you, there are people who've got good marriages that think they know their wife or think they know their husband. No, they do not. There are those that think they know their children. No, they do not. You want me to tell you who does know your children? Who does know your wife? Who does know your husband? It's God. And in that day, when we see him as he is, we'll know one another even as we are known. That's what the Bible says. That's a lot better. And you're never going to look at anybody that's in heaven And wonder if they're telling you the truth or not. Or wondering if they're being totally honest. There's no such thing as being anything other than totally honest in the world to come. Folks, this is so far beyond our experience in this world. That's why this kind of teaching is difficult for us to enter into. But listen to me. The fall took place as a result of people who were not even there when God created the heavens and the earth and we didn't offer him one opinion about how we thought it would be nice and how paradise would be really nice if uh, we had it such and such a way. He didn't need any help. And he doesn't need any help when it comes to the new heaven and the new earth either. And the thing that we need to be the most careful about is coming into his presence, trying to make the new heaven and the new earth fit what we want it to be. That is a mistake. So, I don't know, I hope that I have not... (laughs) discourage you with this teaching I just love to talk about these things and cottage prayer meeting we've we've talked about some of these things in far greater depth than we're able to in this setting but I I hope to bring another couple of messages about it and uh, maybe even Wednesday a couple of weeks from now I'm going to try to get us into some things that I believe we need to understand when it comes to the problem of wanting to help God out and how we would like for things to be. Big mistake. Uh, somebody dismisses in prayer. We got somebody that wants to dismiss us in prayer. We've got a volunteer. Mark, you want to dismiss us in prayer? Please.